what got the Protestant Reformation going? Did Martin Luther just get up one day and say, I'm going to stir things up? No, what provoked him was a false teaching about indulgences. An indulgence was a certificate offered by the Roman Catholic Church. It promises forgiveness of sins. It was doled out as a reward for good works and could be used for, to spend less time in the purgatory. It was taught that for a price, one could draw from the supposed treasury of merit that Jesus and the saints filled with their sacrifices. The money that the church receives would be used to raise revenue and fund major projects like the construction work of St. Peter's Basilica. A jingle that summarizes this idea goes like this, quote, as soon as a coin in the copper rings, the soul from purgatory springs, end quote. The origin of this saying is disputed. Many think Johann Tetzel, the main promoter of the indulgences, said these words. Not quite sure, but Tetzel's body of teaching certainly confirms this false doctrine. Here's an excerpt from one of his sermons on the topic of indulgences around 1517. Quote, You should know that all who confess and in penance put alms into the coffer according to the counsel of the confessor will obtain complete remission of all their sins. Why are you then standing there? Run for the salvation of your souls. Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this, you could redeem us with the small alms, yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears as the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh, and you do not want to save us, though it only takes so little? You let us lie in flames so that we only slowly come to promised glory. You may have letters which let you have once in life and in the hour of death full remission of the punishment which belongs to sin. End quote. If you ever hear anything like this at a local church, run out of the door right away. Now, the case of indulgences I have to say it's extreme. But there are other grave mistakes we make and tolerate today when it comes to teachings on money and faith. If we're not careful, we can easily confuse material blessings with spiritual blessings. We can distort the, distort the true gospel and turn to the prosperity gospel. We need to guard ourselves from false teachers. Many who tell us to sow a seed are actually seedy. Now, unbiblical teachings about finances have always been a problem. In the days of Jesus, the Pharisees were lovers of money. In the last days, in the perilous times, men will be lovers of money. These days, we observe how that love continues as a root of all kinds of evil. And we can't say that our Savior didn't warn us about these things. We see one of those warnings in today's passage. So let's look at Luke 20, 
45 to 21, verse 4. So that's towards the end of Luke 20, Luke chapter 20, verse 45, to chapter 21, verse 4. If you're following along in your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 738. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of ours as a gift from us to you. Luke 20, 45 to 21, 4. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. In this short passage, we have two warnings about the religion of the scribes. Their religion is the opposite of James 1.27, which talks about the pure and undefiled religion. That's about visiting widows and orphans, keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. That's why I call the scribes' religion the impure and defiled religion. So here are the two warnings to avoid their example and influence. First, beware of leaders with vain outward piety. Beware of leaders with vain outward piety. That's chapter 20, verse 45 to 47. Secondly, beware of religion that victimizes those in poverty. Beware of religion that victimizes those in poverty. That's verses 1 to 4 of chapter 21 of Luke. First, beware of leaders with vain outward piety. Before we explore the passage, let's discuss briefly the general concept of leadership. How do you feel about taking on such roles? Are you the type to shrink away, or do you enjoy such positions? Personally, I read passages like today's, and it scares me. There's a part of me that wants to avoid the spotlight as much as I can, but that's simply not possible. Leadership requires leaders to be in the spotlight. As much as I'm a private, introverted person, we're told in Hebrews 13.7, the church leaders must be audible and visible in their teaching, faith, and conduct. Paul told Timothy, a pastor like myself, in 1 Timothy 4.15, that my progress should be evident to all. If a shepherd oversees and sets an example, he's got to get on the stage. Eyes will be on you. Sure, leadership's a tall order even for that tall, lanky King Saul. But we can't be like him. We can't be hiding among the equipment. 
And the fact is the Bible never condemns leadership itself. God didn't speak against leadership in general. He spoke against leadership that's hypocritical. And specifically as it relates to Luke 20, verse 45, Jesus didn't devalue the scribal profession itself. In fact, he once taught in Matthew 13, 52, that every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. But the scribes in today's passage are puffed up in knowledge and exhibit vain outward piety. Let's take a look here. Let's first situate ourselves in the timeline of the Passion Week in Jerusalem. There are time markers in Mark 11, 19 to 20, and verse 27 there. The triumphal entry took place on Sunday, the temple cleansing on Monday, and Jesus returned to the city on Tuesday. You also note that in terms of Christ's teaching ministry, we have a lot of content recorded that Tuesday, more than the other days of that week. Matthew, who seems most eager to record these, narrates the events of that day in over 2,000 verses. I mean, 200. (laughs) So there's a lot going on. And not only that, you'll see how the last few verses of Luke 20 are part of a much longer speech. And this speech was a doozy. If you think Jesus was just some nice guy who never rocked the boat, try reading Matthew 23. You're in for a surprise. He calls scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, blind guides, fools, serpents, brood of vipers. He declares woes. He compares them to whitewashed tombs. He condemns them as the sons of those who murder the prophets. And as you see in Luke 20, 45 to 47, our Lord has something to say to those who love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, and the greetings in the marketplaces. He speaks against those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They deserve greater condemnation than others. So beware of leaders with vain outward piety. That vain outward outward piety is rooted in two participles of Luke 20, verse 46. Those two words bring us inside the hearts of these scribes. The first word is desire. The other is love. First, they desire to walk around in nice clothes. It's as if the streets, a fashion show runway. And then we're told they love the social privileges they enjoy as recognized community leaders. They love the attention in the marketplaces, in the synagogues, and at the feasts. These scribes were just like the Pharisees condemned earlier in Luke 11.43. Their desires are disordered. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Stop for a quick application. We also need to examine our internal desires and our loves. Do we care more about decking ourselves than covering the naked? 
Is the public where we promote ourselves and our brand? Or is it where we preach Jesus and the resurrection, as Paul did in Athens? Or how do you go about your business at religious events or special celebrations? Back in Luke 14, 7 to 11, Jesus clearly taught his disciples to take the lowest places at those functions. That way the host can tell you later, friend, go up higher. That's much better than taking the best place. Then the host would usher in someone more honorable and ask you, give place to this man. Beware of what's within. Vain outward piety starts with simple desires and simple loves. And then in Luke 20, verse 47, we see that these two internal problems manifest in two outward actions. Here's the first outward action. We observe that these scribes took advantage of widows. The widows back then were not exactly like the widows today. In those days, they were completely vulnerable. They were absolutely dependent on legal experts and family members for survival. I gotta say, only thing worse than neglecting widows is exploiting them as these scribes did. Now, what does it mean exactly when it says they devour widows' houses? There isn't much help from parallel accounts. Mark doesn't add anything new. Matthew 23, 14 only adds that the Pharisees joined the scribes in this evil. The commentators offer at least six theories on this. One, some scribes accepted fees for legal aid, though such payments were forbidden. Two, the late husbands willed that the scribes be trustees of the estate, but they were cheating the widows of their due. Three, the scribes leashed off the kind hospitality of the widows as gluttons. Four, they mismanaged the property of widows like Anna in Luke 2, women who had dedicated themselves to lifelong temple service. Five, the scribes took money from the widows who wanted someone godly to pray long prayers for their behalf. And finally, six, the scribes took houses as pledges for debts that could not be paid. We don't have much to confirm or deny outright any or all of these theories, but I do lean towards option two. That is, I tend to think that the scribes were acting as the widow's trustees of property or guardians of the estate, but then they were abusing their positions out of greed. In my, uh, in my view, this scenario fits the best on the context. As educated and literate interpreters of the law, they be qualified to work through complicated legal matters. Because of their religious vocation, they were also perceived to be worthy of trust. Once they had gained the trust of the widows, they navigated through the ins and outs, circumvented obstacles, took the assets, and covered their tracks. And one way to cover their tracks was making a show of their piety through their long prayers. This is the second outward action stemming from wrong desires and loves. Of course, the general public would never suspect these leaders of shady deals with the widows, 
Why would they? They probably say, do you hear how Rabbi so-and-so prays so eloquently? Do you see how much Bible that guy knows? No way that they're exploiting the helpless. But upon further inspection, there's something behind those long prayers. And it's not pretty. That phrase, for a pretense, is elsewhere in the Bible contrasted with truth in Philippians 1.18. It's translated as a cloak in 1 Thessalonians 2.5. The public corporate prayer before everyone was a cloak and dagger operation under the radar. Beware of leaders with vain outward piety. Let's wrap up this first point by looking at the last sentence of Luke 20 and going back to the idea of leadership. There's great dignity and respect in positions of authority, but there's also a great risk. If you're at the top of a building and drop something dangerous, you might whack someone below on the head. If you're a pillar of an organization, Floors of people will fall to their doom if you collapse. That's why leaders, guilty of greed, pretense, and vanity, rightly and justly deserve the sentence of greater condemnation. The judgment leaders receive is weightier than what a non-leader would receive. Brothers and sisters, that's why the leaders of our church need your prayer. Sunday school teachers, the elders, the deacons, the men who pray and read scripture publicly, Awana teachers and small group leaders. Pray that our faith is not merely a show of vain outward piety. Now you might think, oh, I know these men and women. They're so humble. They never be like one of these scribes. I understand the sentiment. I don't mean any disrespect to those leaders or your discernment of their character. I'm just saying, and I'm willing to wager that these leaders would agree with me on this. Don't underestimate the enemy. Don't minimize those fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Don't ignore the sin nature which desires wrong desires, loves and craves attention. If left unchecked, ungodly leaders create and perpetuate a system that crushes the weakest and snuffs out the poorest. We know Christ was the opposite. It's prophesied in Isaiah 42, verse 3, and fulfilled in Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. What a difference a holy great leader makes. What a disaster an unholy leader brings. That gets us to the second principle. Beware of religion that victimizes those in poverty. Let's move on to chapter 21 now. As we do, we should not think that verses 1 to 4 are isolated from what precedes it. 
Both here and in Mark 12.41, there is indeed a link, a connection between the scribes who devoured the houses of widows and that one widow who put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. But what is this link and connection? This is the really challenging part of studying Luke 21, 1-4. We've got to concentrate, read, and reread. And, when, and we should look at a word, sentence, or a paragraph contextually. Don't just read it in isolation or rely solely on cross-references. And it also helps to consult solid teachers. This week, I listened to a sermon from John MacArthur on this passage. The title of it is Abusing the Poor, and it was preached on September 2nd, 2007. You can find the audio and video file online on grace to you You should check it out. There are a few things with which I disagree, but I do agree with MacArthur on the following. Jesus is not mainly teaching about the virtue of giving here. We're not told to imitate this poor widow in giving up her last few cents. Go home and die of starvation and become a beggar or something. This is not like the challenge issued to the rich young ruler to go and sell what he had and give to the poor. This is not the call of the apostles who have left all to follow Jesus. I don't even think it's parallel to the Macedonian Christians in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-7. Actually, this story of the poor widow giving up her livelihood is an indictment. It's a condemnation of the scribes and their practices. It's the opposite, like I said, of James 1, 27 and 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. A pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows in their trouble. Impure and defiled religion takes away their last two cents, strips them of their final shred of dignity. If a godly pastor honors those widows who are completely alone, relieves their burdens, an ungodly leader dishonors such widows and impoverishes them. With that in mind, let's review what happened here. The scene takes place in the temple courts where Jesus was teaching publicly. According to Nehemiah 12.44, there were chambers, designated rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes. Also, according to Jewish tradition, temple officials stationed 13 shofar chests. These are offering boxes shaped like trumpets to collect the people's giving. Inscribed on these were titles like new shekel dues, old shekel dues, gold for the mercy seat, and free will offerings. And into these, the rich offered from their abundance. But then a certain poor widow put in two mites. He'd be barely noticed by most there that day, but Jesus notices. Then he shockingly declares that this poor widow has put in more than all. This makes no sense mathematically. By one account, one mite was worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius, and a denarius was worth about a day's worth of wages. We're talking about one-eighth of a cent. So two of them together, a quarter of a penny. A rich man could dig out more from his pockets, 
we can probably scrape up more from underneath our sofas or under our car seats. While the wealthy gave out of their abundance, the widow gave out of her poverty. The affluent ones had much left over, but the poor lady had nothing left over. What will become of her? How does her story end? There's no promise made to this woman that all things will turn out well. This is not the same story as the one we read earlier from 1 Kings 17. There's no word of the Lord spoken through a man of God so that the bin of flour is not used up and the jar of oil did not run dry. No such promise. No happy ending. This poor widow has given herself up to a false religion and fake teachers. These scribes with their pretentious prayers are nothing like Elijah. Elijah was a righteous man of fervent and effective prayer. Beware of religion that victimizes those in poverty. How awful is this scene unfolding before us. You see in today's passage, the scribe and the widow, the transgressor and the victim, the rich leader and the poor follower, the cause and the effect, the choice of sin and the consequence of sin. We've all been affected by evil, but what hurts most are the evil acts of those who pretend to be righteous, leaders with vain outward piety, But before we get so judgmental, we must see those worst qualities of the scribes in ourselves. Let's admit it. We like the attention of people, just as they did. We love to have preeminence among peers as they did and as Theotropus did in 3 John 9. Instead of humbling ourselves, we exalt ourselves. We may not devour the houses of the helpless or pray long prayers pretentiously, but we are guilty of coveting what belongs to our neighbor. We are guilty of hypocrisy. And the Bible says that those who covet will not inherit God's kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6. Hypocrites are sons of hell. Jesus himself said it. For all these reasons and more, All of us deserve condemnation. Sure, it may not be greater than the judgment of these scribes, but we are still deserving of God's wrath. God's standards are perfect, and we are far from them. We're in some trouble, serious trouble, before the holy God. But this is where Jesus comes in. He is better than the fallible religious leaders of his days is better than the best pastor of our days. Our Lord taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. Unlike them, his desires were for mercy. As the Father has loved him, he has loved his own. Instead of enjoying the seats of honor, he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. He comforted a widow of name and raised from dead, 
her one and only son. He who is God prayed as man, not in pretense, but earnestly with blood, tears, and godly fear. But Jesus was rejected. In a few days after Jesus condemned the chief priests and the scribes, they condemned him to death. Our Lord, who did no wrong, was wrongfully killed. But he did not die for nothing. He was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. That means God's righteous judgment was satisfied as Jesus took on himself the consequences of our evil. This happened at the cross as Christ became the substitute. Then he rose again from the dead on the third day and ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return, draw near for judgment. He'll be a swift witness against sinners, including those who exploit widows. On that day, the Lord will punish the evil, the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. He will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Before that day, before it's too late, repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins of vanity, mere outward piety. Turn to Jesus, your only hope of salvation. Place your faith in Christ alone. You cannot earn eternal life with your good works or indulgences. You cannot deserve it. We are but poor beggars reaching out our needy hand to gracious King Jesus. And if we do, God, rich in mercy, secures for us his spiritual blessings in heaven in Christ, even if we spend our time on earth impoverished. And by God's grace, someday we'll arrive to heaven safely. Until then, let's make our final song a prayer of praise. Let's confess together. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. O King of glory, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a holy God. And Lord, you see us as we are. You see our hearts. You see us in our low moments. Lord, there's nothing hidden from you. And Lord, we thank you that despite this eternal gap between your holiness and our sinfulness, you close that gap with your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is gentle, loving, and at the same time, holy and just. And he took on himself the punishment for sin. We ask that, Lord, that we would 
worship you this week, not just today, would honor you, that our lives will reflect the glory of Christ. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.